Well, we are in the book of Colossians, as uh, probably have a couple more uh, sermons to, to go before we finish up this uh, great book. Someone asked me as uh, the service was beginning this morning, can they go back and can they listen to the other messages in Colossians? And I said, yeah, absolutely. If you go to our website, ibcrichcrest.org, uh, you can find all the, the messages in this uh, series. So, so I encourage you to do that. Um, one thing we didn't mention in the announcements this morning was the, uh, another event that's taking place. And uh, guys in particular, we're going to need your help. But it also involves the ladies as well. But there's going to be a work day over at uh, the Graff Street campus on the weekend of the 29th and 30th. Um, we need to dig a ditch, guys. Uh, we have a meter, we have two meters over there on that campus. We're taking a couple of our AC units off of one meter and putting it on another meter because the other meter uh, has more solar panels attached to that uh, service that will uh, help us in our energy costs. So we're looking to dig a ditch, and so we're going to need some strong backs. This ditch needs to be about 18 inches deep, I'm told, and uh, travel, uh, I'm not sure how many feet, but we need several guys. And so if you can help us on the next Flex Friday, uh, that would be most appreciated. Uh, this is going to save us about $7,000 annually. Uh, in our electric bill. So for a couple thousand dollars to lay this uh, this wiring and attach it to a n- different meter, uh, we're going to save in the long term. So we need your help. But ladies, uh, we also need help in p- painting four classrooms over at ICS. And so the school is going to be advertising uh, the uh, among the, the parents of the school uh, help on that weekend as well. So we hope to get a lot accomplished that weekend, and that's coming up in two weeks. All right? Well, we are looking at Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be finishing chapter 3 and looking at the first verse of chapter 4. And uh, and we've been t- looking at the the grace of God and that it, the difference that it makes in our life. And we've been looking at... Um, when when Paul t- tells us this in, in Col- Colossians chapter 3, immediately on all these benefits of who we are and what God has done for us, uh, the first place Paul goes to in saying that the gospel, um, who we are in Christ, the difference that is to make in our, our lives, he immediately addresses the relationship between a husband and a wife. If you're going to wear... Uh, kingdom clothing. God wants us to wear kingdom clothing. And the kingdom clothing is found in verse 12 of chapter 3. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, uh, putting on love. This wardrobe is to show up in our relationship with our spouse. And beyond our relationship with our spouse... This gospel, who we are in Christ, the difference also needs to be made in our relationship with how we relate to mom and dad, kids, and parents, how we relate to our children. And then he comes to verse 22 this morning, and this is where we pick up and I want to read. Paul says this, bond servants, or in other translations, slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. There, there's that word again, sincerity of heart. It's about the heart where these... Um, these feelings, these emotions, this life of obedience needs to originate from. Out of sincerity, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven so we're, here we are, Colossians chapter 3. Paul's talked about the relationship between a husband and wife, children and their parents. Father, don't provoke your children to anger. And then he goes from those relationships to slaves and masters. What in the world is happening here? I mean, it looks, it sounds or feels as if Paul is grinding gears, okay? He's gone from... Um, uh, fifth gear to first gear. Why, why has he taken this shift? Well, you need to understand what's happening in the first century. That uh, in this uh, Roman world, um, there were a lot of slaves. In fact, maybe half the population of the Roman world were, were slaves. Scholars tell us that there was, may have been as many as 60 million slaves that were here when the New Testament was written. And so when you're looking at the household and whom Paul is addressing in the book of Colossians, or Colossians um, there were slaves in this church. Uh, fathers most likely had slaves in the home. And so this relationship between the master and the slave was a very natural progression from the, the marriage relationship to the children, now to the master and the slaves, because slaves were very much a part of the household. And so Paul has some words to men in particular as to how they were to treat their their masters. And so, you know, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, the cultural equivalent for how it relates to us today would be the workforce, the employee-employer relationship, and we're going to get into that in, in a moment. But I really want to uh, address this subject of slavery, because uh, we live in a uh, very aggressive world when it comes to skeptics and atheists, and they like to take this text and use it as uh, their their defense that the Bible is an antiquated, antiquated, thank you, antiquated and bigoted book. And so what's going on here when Paul talks about a slave and master relationship? Because on the surface, it seems as though Paul is condoning slavery. He's not speaking out against it. You know, you don't hear him say the words or elsewhere that slavery should be abolished. The New Testament neither condones nor condemns slavery. Now, it does condemn slave trading. If you go to the book of 1 Timothy, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul lists a whole host of, uh, of, of sins. And Paul says that the, the, the word of God was written to uh, speak out against these sins, and one of these sins is slave trading. So the Bible is against slave trading, but why isn't the Bible, why isn't Paul more outspoken against slavery? You know, in this text this morning, he's using four, he's speaking to, to slaves, bondservants, 
he's using four verses, and he's using one verse in chapter 1. Oh, we didn't read chapter 1 verse, or chapter 4 verse 1, I don't think. Did I? Okay. Only one verse regarding the master. So what's happening here, and why does the Bible seem so soft? A few things are taking place here. As Paul is addressing this church, the church most likely has far more slaves than it does masters. Um, Second reason why Paul is speaking more to the slaves than, than the master is because when it comes to Christianity, Christianity is a very tiny sect. Uh, it doesn't have any influence in culture and in Roman society whatsoever in the beginning. It is very small, and Paul is planting seeds. I mean, the, 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 the institution of slavery is enormous. Half the population is slaves. And so Paul knows that... Uh, when he talks about our freedom in Christ and that we're no longer slaves in this world, that we're slaves, we're bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul understands that the institution of slavery isn't going to crumble in one generation. And even though these believers in Christ are free they still have a responsibility to uh, obey their master, their employer. If they were suddenly just to rebel, you know, um, the Roman government would see that as Christianity is a form of rebellion, a religion of rebellion, and it would be very easy for the Roman government to just shut down Christianity. And Paul knows that that uh, over time, people are going to understand these truths, and and over time, the institutions of slavery, the institution of slavery, will crumble as be- as people become more biblically um, informed. But we are just in the beginning stages. And so Paul's strategy here, when it comes to the institution of slavery, is for the slaves to behave, to live in such a way that it would make Christianity very attractive to the lost world. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And so primarily, as Paul has written this letter to Colossians, he knows he's speaking primarily to slaves in this house church. And so Paul is encouraging them to live in such a way that the gospel is attractive to lost people. Make the doctrine of God attractive. But does Paul condone slavery? Absolutely not. Because in Paul's very first letter, Paul's letter to the Galatian church, he said this in verses 26 through 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. 
for all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to this idea of slavery, no one person is any better than anyone else. We are all one in the eyes of God. And so when it comes to the gospel, every person, we are all created in the image of God. And so we are all to be uh, treated with dignity. We are all sinners. We are all in need of the grace of God in our life. And so the, the, the field is level. The ground at the cross is level. There is no person or there is no race that is any better than anyone else. And so Paul knows this. Paul believes us, believes this. And, uh, and yet, Paul knows he's writing to a people that is steeped in the institution of slavery. But Paul's words truly are revolutionary. He's telling masters to be just and fair to those who serve you. In chapter 4, verse 1. He knows that as people think more biblically, the institution of slavery is going to crumble. In fact, Paul knew that slaves in a church could be leaders over their masters in that church. You know, if you go to the book of Philemon, Philemon is just after Titus, just a one small letter, 25 verses long. In fact, Philemon may have been in the church at Colossae. The church of Colossae may have um, been meeting in Philemon's home. As we move on in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, as this letter that Paul has written as it's coming to the church at Colossae, Onesimus is bringing this letter. He's carrying this letter uh, to the church at Colossae, but he's also got another letter in his back pocket. And it's a letter to Philemon. And Paul wrote to this slave master, Philemon, and said, Philemon, you need to forgive Onesimus. You need to understand who Onesimus is. Onesimus was a slave who had ran away from Philemon. And Paul encountered uh, Onesimus in, in Rome. Paul led Onesimus to the Lord. Paul had led Philemon to the Lord uh, years ago. And so Paul is writing to uh, Philemon, say, Philemon, you need to forgive uh Onesimus. He's now your brother in Christ. And you need to treat him not as a slave anymore, but as brother. You need to treat him, Philemon, just as you would treat me. And uh, and so this is an interesting turn of events, you know, an upside-down relationship. So Philemon who is a rich master, could could be a servant of Onesimus in the church. Onesimus could be a leader of the local New Testament church. And so those relationships uh, occur within the New Testament. So Paul doesn't condone slavery in the least. And he doesn't come across very strongly about condemning slavery either. But he knows that over time, as people think biblically, this institution will crumble. It's kind of like maybe someone here today is wanting to encourage Christians, whether it be in Iraq or North Korea 
or some place where um, they're being heavily persecuted, you know, that believer could be writing a letter to Christians in that country encouraging them how to live uh, under the influence of a dictatorship or something that's uh, very unjust. They're not necessarily condemning or condoning the government, but they're encouraging the believer. How to encourage the believer to live in such a way that the doctrine of God is attractive. The teachings of Christ, the gospel, can be attractive to the lost world. That's what we see happening in this passage of Scripture. But Paul encourages those who are in slavery. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. This is what he says about slavery. Every person should remain in the situation that they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. So he's encouraging believers, if you have the opportunity to get out of slavery, do so. But if not, guess what? You are free in Christ. And if you're not a slave, don't jump into slavery. And so this is what Paul thinks about slavery. Now, what was a slave in that day? Well, before we get to that, let me just mention this. When it comes to Southern Baptists and slavery in the 1960s, I'm ashamed to say that we don't have a very good track record. You know how Southern Baptist, the denomination of Southern Baptist came about? It was because the, the Baptists in the South got in an argument with the Baptists in the North over the issue of slavery. And we were in favor of slavery. In fact, you know, there are Baptist preachers, you can go back and read their sermons, and they justified their position from the Bible that the Bible was not against slavery. As they read scripture, um, again, this was just a huge blind spot when it came to their interpretation of scripture, but they would say that because the Bible was not outspoken about the the sin of slavery, that um, it was permissible. And that's how the Southern Baptist Convention got started. If you'll go to uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I believe it's in Louisville, Kentucky, you'll find names on buildings of uh, the founders of that uh, theological seminary. And they were in favor of slavery. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, has come out and been very outspoken over the fact that that was wrong. And they've repented. And in fact, it's very dear to our <clears throat> the leadership of our denomination today that we, that our denomination become diverse in its ethnicity uh, when it comes to leaders and those different ethnic groups coming to the table's influence within our denomination. There was a huge conversation about that uh, this last week in Dallas, Texas. But in the beginning of Southern Baptist life, uh, we don't have a very good track record uh, in this, on this subject. Now, don't interpret the very dark ages 
of American history in slavery like that was what the way it was back in the first century. Because that's not the way it was. Every ethnic group in the <clears throat> in the Roman world, you know, when you look at uh, uh, the, the demographics or you look at the geography of the Roman world, it it covered uh, an, an enormous map. It was huge in its geography. It included uh, many different nations, many different people groups and uh, races, and every race had slaves. And it was, it was very different than the American history slavery. As you look at slavery in the first century, it was very complicated. Slaves in uh, American history, it was it was like a death sentence. You could never get out of of uh, of, of slavery. But slavery in the first century, people had choices. Some people were slaves because they had a debt that. Uh, they could never pay off, and so they became the slave of the person that they owed money to. Them and their whole household would become the slaves of those of the family who had lent them money. Um, there was no social security system in the first century. If you got sick, or if there was a famine that hit, or you were on the brink of starvation, or something of this nature, uh, you would have to be, in order to survive, you would have to become somebody's slave in order to provide for your family. Prisoners of war uh, would become bond servants of those who had uh, defeated that country. Children. Um, talked about this a few weeks ago. If... Uh, if a wife had a child and she brought this child to her husband and the husband didn't want this child, all he had to do was turn his back and say, this child is not going to be a part of this family. And that child had to be discarded. And oftentimes the child would be put out on the street and whoever was walking by and felt compassion for this child uh, could take that child in and would that child would become that person's slave. Now for this, a lot of Christians began adopting these children in the first century, but it wasn't necessarily children who were going along and finding these children and making them their slaves. You know, if these children were picked up by somebody that person didn't know the Lord, didn't love the Lord. I mean, who can say what would have hap- what happened to those children? So, but you found people who had slavery because of how life started for them. Some people chose to become slaves because they wanted to learn a new trade, and so they would become um, a slave of somebody who was knowledgeable in a certain area and they would work for that person and in working as they acquired this skill then they would uh, venture out on their own until they were established and they could make it themselves. And so in the first century there were a lot of options as to why slavery was taking place. But I just want to be clear that Paul never condoned slavery. He saw that in the long term, as people were thinking biblically, this institution would crumble. So just understand the Bible is not an antiquated, bigoted book. Paul was writing to a group of people encouraging them to live live according to the gospel, live according to the grace of God, how God has created, 
treated them. They treat their masters in return. And as they live this life of obedience and, and grace, that the gospel is going to be attractive uh, to those who don't know Jesus Christ. So, we don't have slavery today, and so the, the equivalent to this passage of Scripture today for us as believers would be the employee-employer uh, relationship, the workforce. And, uh, and so as we look at this passage of Scripture, what would God have us glean when it comes to um, um, being obedient service, servants. <clears throat> first thing I want to share with you, I'm almost done, okay? Uh, first part of this message is a lot longer than the second part. But Paul would have us to understand this morning, church, is that work is good. Work is glorifying to God. It is good to work. What is the biblical view of work. I like what Gene, um, Gene Vice writes in the Gospel Coalition about this subject. He says this, God himself, in his providential care for his whole creation, is working through our human vocations. God gives us our daily bread by means of the farmer, the miller, and the baker. He protects us by means of lawful magistrates. He creates and cares for new human beings by means of fathers and mothers. He proclaims his word and administers his sacraments by the means of pastors. He creates beauty by means of artists and musicians. It requires everybody to work for the world to go around. God in his providence, God in his care for the world, wants us to be serving in it. And as we serve the way God has called us to do, to do whatever that might be, you know what? Not only do you benefit, you provide for your family, but others around you are cared for. And God is caring for all of us as we are all doing our part. Work is not a result of the curse. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work. And it was only till the fall in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world that work became hard. Okay? But when it comes to work, God's will for your life is to work. Now, I know some of you hate work. You can't wait until you retire and you don't have to serve anybody. You've got a life to your own. I want you to know that that's not God's will for your life. Oh, you might work yourself into retirement as an early, at an early age as you save. But when it comes to work in God's kingdom, there is no retirement. God always wants us to be doing something. Not only for your benefit, but for the benefit of those around you. And I got some more news for you. When we get to heaven, guess what? We're just not going to be on a cloud with wings and strumming some instrument and everything's just going to be all peaceful and there's not going to be anything to do. Know what? We're going to be working in heaven. We're going to be productive. Uh, We're going to be serving uh, the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Heaven is not going to be boring. And so when it comes to the issue of work, understand that the Hebrew word for work is interpreted worship. 
as we work, um, we are to be serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, understand when it comes to your work, your work is not your identity. Our identity, your identity, is not to be found in what you do. Because that may change. You may move on to different careers. You may lose that career. Your identity is to be in the person of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. That's um, where you are. So our identity is not to be uh, in our work. And we're not to worship our work. Worship, we're to worship our Lord, but we are to serve our, our Lord through our work. Now, how are we to serve as employees? Let's go to verse 22. Bond servants, okay, <clears throat> that would be us today in the workforce. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. When it comes to obeying our earthly masters, Paul is emphasizing a sincere heart. Okay, if we're going to make the doctrine of God attractive, it needs to come from the heart. It's not because we're being coerced to do something. It's because what we are doing, as you as you obey your master, you are obeying your master's boss, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is concerned about the heart. Paul was concerned about the heart as dads raising their children. You know, we didn't want our children to obey because we were coercing them to do something. We wanted them to obey because it was coming from their heart. We need to pay attention to the heart. And as employees... We need to have sincere hearts. Paul says, not as eye-pleasers. What does that mean? You know, we don't just serve our masters. We're not just good employers when they're watching over us. We are just as diligent. We are uh, just as conscientious and doing just as much as a good job when they aren't in our presence as when they are. Remember what it was like in gym class? This is a long time ago for me now. But the PE coach, you know, would tell us to do push-ups. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't have the best athletic build. And uh, oftentimes I was doing push-ups as uh, an eye-pleaser. You know, as long as the coach was looking at me, I was trying to do it as, as well as I could. But when the coach wasn't looking, my knees went to the ground, and I was just kind of doing them real easy-like. You know, Paul is saying in this passage, not as man-pleasers, eye-pleasers, not just when the boss is looking, but you have far different motivation. Not only is he looking, but your boss's boss is looking. And our boss's boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be doing it for him. And so Paul is saying, get your heart into the job. My question to you this morning and where you are working today, is your heart in the job? God wants your heart to be in it. And the way we get our heart in it is that we need to understand that we're not just being obedient to our employer, but we are being obedient to our employer's employer. Jesus. That is our boss. 
And that's whom we need to be serving and fearing and doing as good a job as possible. One of the ways we can spread the gospel in the community of Ridgecrest is by being good employees. Paul is saying in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, work in such a way that we adorn the doctrine of God. Work for Jesus. As I was studying this uh, passage uh, for this week, I, um, <clears throat> there was the illustration of uh, a custodian was training another custodian. And it was showing him how to clean the bathroom, to clean the commode. And as he was cleaning the toilet, he complete, he cleaned everything um, that you can see, but then the trainer also wiped around the back of the toilet. And the trainee said, why did you clean around the back of the toilet? Because Jesus sees the back of the toilet, the trainer said. We need to be working for our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our all. So enhance the beauty beauty of the doc, of the doctrine of God by the way that you work. Because again, the translation for work in the Hebrew is worship. And as you work for your employer, you're not just working for him, but you are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to understand that. Verse 24, verse B, B, the last part of that verse, you are serving the Lord Christ. And then he says this. Not only are you to do it with a sincere heart, because it's going to honor him. But as you do it, you are going to be rewarded. Now, unfortunately, for the slave, they didn't have 403Bs back then. You know, they didn't have social security. They weren't looking to any form of retirement in the first century church. And so when they heard Paul say that you are going to receive an inheritance in heaven, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. Let's go back, verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So he's telling his slaves, you may not get it here, but just understand, as you are serving the Lord, As you are doing your very best, you are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that encouraged these bondservants, these these slaves. That was music to their ears. And so Paul has four verses in relationship to the slave, and then one verse for the masters. Verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Treat them, masters, justly and fairly. You can't abuse them. Just as you have experienced the grace of God in your life, just as you are, you know, the slaves have been set free, Masters have been set free. They're no longer slaves to sin. They've encountered the grace of God. That gives them the ability to be selfless, to no longer serve themselves, but be thinking, being conscientious of others, being putting others before themselves. That's what happens when Jesus sets us free. And so as masters, you don't don't have to think about yourselves anymore. You've been set free. Just as the slave has been set free, masters, you've been set free. You now have the ability to think of others more than yourself. 
and you need to treat your uh, slave justly and fairly. Now, did that happen automatically? I don't know. But this is a strong word for Christian believers who are in authority over others. We need to be fair. We need to be just. We need to treat others as we would want to be treated. That's the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse, 20, uh, verse 12. That needs to be our guide. You know, I like, um, I haven't seen this show very often, but uh, Undercover Boss. You've seen the show Undercover Boss? And, you know, the owners of a company would, uh, <clears throat> would uh, um, I want to say camouflage their sel- themselves, was disguise them, thank you, and go undercover and be one of the employees. And they would see how um, the managers would be treating the employees. They would be, be in conversation with their employees. And it was an eye-opening experience. Well, guess what? Uh, employers, Jesus is your undercover boss. And he's watching how you treat those who are beneath you. And God says in verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. God wants us, God wants you to be Jesus to your employees. God wants you to serve those who serve you. God wants you to adorn the doctrine of God. God wants you to make the gospel attractive to those who are lost underneath you. The gospel is to make a difference not only to the employer, but to the employee. People need to see God. There was a little girl who was in conversation with her with her mother and said, Mom, the pastor's sermon was a bit confusing today. And the mom said, Oh, why? And she said, Well, he said that God is bigger than we are. Is that true? God's bigger than us? And mom said, Yes, he is. Well, the pastor also said that uh, God also lives in our hearts, lives inside of us. Is that true? And mom said, yes, it is. Then the little girl said, well, if God is bigger than us and God lives in us, wouldn't God show through? Yeah. God wants to show through, church, where we work. And so my question to you is how are you doing with that? God wants us to be serving him with sincere hearts. God wants us to be obedient to our employers with sincere hearts. Not as eye pleasers, but we are serving our Lord Jesus Christ. Is the gospel attractive in how you serve on your job. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how practical it is today. God, I pray that if there there are those here in this service this morning who struggle with their job, Father, not everybody's happy with their job. One statistic I read said that nine out of ten people hate their job. I can't imagine that. But, Lord, if, if people in this room are in that category today, God, I pray that you would just do heart surgery. 
Give them eyes to see that, Lord, they don't serve their boss. They serve you. And their attitude at work is a reflection of who you are or who you aren't in their life. And God, you want the gospel to make a difference at the water cooler, in our place of employment. And Paul is telling us in this passage of Scripture this morning that it starts with us. My friend, brother or sister in Christ, how's your heart? God understands the environment. Jesus understands how hard it is. And Jesus is there to help you. And as we look to Jesus, knowing that Jesus left heaven's glory and became one of us, not to be served, but to serve to make his life a ransom for many. Jesus knows what it's like to serve. And he wants to help you. Would you ask him for help? Look to Jesus as your example. Father, help us make the gospel attractive in our workplace and help it and may it start with me may it start with each one who hears these words this morning be glorified thank you father in Jesus name amen